I think that Upandita knew I was attached to... Uh, basically, I felt that I was attached on a very subtle little level to my heart center. And uh, by just the way that I was reporting my experience, uh, he could tell, uh, because I would... There was a preference for, for uh, my attention to stay there at times instead of just let go of control and let, let whatever happened happen. Whenever my attention went to the heart center, I would tend to uh, stay there longer than uh, just letting things appear and disappear. Uh, and the way that we can tell if we're attached is to notice wherever there's any, any stickiness and it doesn't mean that a preference is wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, I don't know how you wouldn't prefer a day like today to, you know, <laughs> uh, pouring rain, cold day. Uh, you know, there'll be these uh, preferences, but then we learn to work with them and learn to let go of control more and more. So you can see you can see the preferences that you have by where anything is sticky, meaning that instead of just being able to let things roll on, you know, let them let life uh, just keep going on as it does, we we grab on. When you say you were stuck in your heart center, and you were talking too much about. I wasn't talking much about it. (laughs) It was much more that when my attention would go there, I liked it, and I would tend to uh, stay there. And if a sound happened, I wouldn't necessarily let my attention go to the sound. I would hang out at the heart center, (laughs) which was very pleasant. Uh, we can only disidentify when we see clearly. Uh, so I think that a lot of the work tends to be initially accepting that they're there, whether it's enjoyment, <laughs> happiness, uh, sadness, loneliness, you know, the multiple kind of emotions we can have. Uh, and until we can see that an emotion is not mine, that's seeing clearly. It's seeing that it's uh, just another uh, experience that comes and goes, and it's not solid. Until we can see that clearly, we tend to be identified. Uh, but a, a lot of the work is accepting that an emotion has appeared. If we can accept that it has appeared and then drop into the experience of it, usually we'll get a sense that that, that emotion is okay. And, and when we can experience it, we'll start to experience that it comes and goes by itself. And that, that understanding that it's coming and going by itself helps us to disidentify with it. Mindfulness is there. There's, n- there's never a problem with anything. You know, when we see something clearly, 
If it's uh, a sound of a bird or a pain in the knee or fear, if we see it clearly, we see that it, it isn't ours, that it's coming and going and there's no problem. Uh, so I would say that anytime there's mindfulness, it's a good idea to, to work with what's there. If, if we tend to be really identified and say, oh no, not that again, it's kind of clear that we're, you know, we're not that mindful at that moment. You know, it's like, that's aversion or extreme aversion. And then it's, it's helpful to see, well, do, is it better for me to really uh, move away from that and ignore it? which is concentration. You ignore what's happening and ground the attention with something else. And, you, and that's a very valid thing to do. It's building up the strength so that you can open up the attention again to be with whatever's there. So what determines whether we can be with something is mindfulness, energy, equanimity. Uh, and if we can't, it's better to move away from it. Because whatever is, you know, whatever billboard signs are there, they won't bother you. When there's mindfulness, it just won't be something that you feel like you need to move away from. It's, oh, oh, it's fear. Oh, okay. You know, and it might not be perfectly equanimous. It might be a sense that, oh, maybe I can explore this. There might be a little bit of hesitation. But it's not like massive resistance. When there's massive resistance or resistance, uh, it, there's a, it's not so easy to push through that resistance to the experience. It's usually better to back off until you have enough energy and strength to get through to the experience. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, that question about what was I attached to for so many years, it's like, in some ways, the, the experience of being at the heart center is probably the most pleasurable experience. It's much more subtle than ice cream, but it's incredibly pleasurable. And for me, it's just, I kept seeing that bite, that craving, that, you know, it's, it's the initial experience of pleasure isn't a problem. It's, it's not that we're trying to get rid of pleasure. Uh, and the world is full of pleasure. You know, and there's a happiness that comes with pleasure that isn't considered to be something you're trying to get rid of. And the reason the human realm is so important is because we have this mixture of pain and pleasure. It's not a hell realm. It's not a heaven realm, which really motivates us to try to understand what's going on that we have because we have this incredible mix. You know, but you get a sense of how difficult it is to just let pleasure be there when it is. And then it's and then to see what happens when it goes. And and that it's it's not easy to come to terms with this change. You know, that, that the pleasure comes. And, you know, we can say, I don't care if it's impermanent, um, but it is. And we just, just get the experience over and over again of noticing that 
holding on to the pleasure so many times. <laughs> you know, that's what a three-month course is all about. <laughs> you, go, you go through it over and over and over and over and over, and it's like holding a hot potato. It finally hurts so much, the holding on, like for me, the holding on to the heart center hurts so much. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you get backed up to the wall and a little white flag goes out. <laughs> you know, it's like, surrender! <laughs> Yeah, it's a, there is a skillful way because pleasure is important. If it was all pain, huh, you can imagine, you know, that's a hell realm. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm. About uh, resistance and the different forms of resistance spoken of, and uh, perhaps a relationship between resistance and a um, identified sense of yeah, self? Yeah. Yeah. Right. By, by resistance, sometimes we hear that word and, and also think that it's something wrong or bad, and we tend to pathologize it. and. Um, I don't think that's healthy at all either. Sometimes resistance is something we quite need and that have been uh, quite helpful for some time in helping us, uh, protecting us from overwhelming emotions or feelings. So actually a better term for resistance might be a, a protective measures. But we can feel resistance in practice as we start to get close to certain strong energies or emotions, say anger or rage. Um, and at that point, it's obvious why that resistance might be there, because sometimes uh, uh, mindfulness and energy concentration might be a bit tenuous, a bit fragile, and would easily be overwhelmed or drown in that emotion. So that's why the resistance might be there. In either case, because the resistance or that protective measure is there, that would be the closer object to be with anyway and to just open to that and explore it. What is that resistance? Is it a fear? Or is it a, uh, um, an aversion to the object? Or is it a desire not to experience it? Or just to know what that is in itself, to be with it. Um, the resistance itself can be a form of identification, as you have asked. That is, if there's a uh, solidification, identification with that protective measure of resistance, with strong attachment, strong fear, strong aversion, so forth, then it would be an identification. It would be a sense of self-solidifying with that. Uh, if the mindfulness is quite strong, however, and there's no identification, and the, it be, it's, it's not so solidified, then it's just that protective measure, that is, the resistance, the fear, the desire, so forth. Clear to you? Okay. Yeah. Which one? There were two mad elephants. <laughs> <clears throat> Naligiri or the one that I saw? Naligiri, okay. Yeah.
because it sort of Im uh, <clears throat> it embodies that rage rather than being so identified with it. It helps it to be helps there to be some detachment, healthy det detachment. Uh, so you know, if I'm identified with the rage, if I am the rage, there's no space, there's no room, there's nothing. It can't be worked with. But if it's in that image, uh, and that you know, and, it, and it's a again that image for me represents a, a protective measure, rather than um, because the elephant felt betrayed, or that's the other story. But I'll tell, <laughs> I'll refer to the story where I saw the elephant because it felt betrayed, because it was betrayed. Then it got angry. It's a natural sequence and it ran off to take its bath. So that image for me, it just, it holds the power of all that, the betrayal, the abandonment, and the anger, the rage, and so forth. Uh, and behind it, the desire to feel trust and connection and uh, uh, fidelity and so forth. So as I was saying in this, uh, the point of the story was, there's gold in that story, and there's gold behind that rage. You know, behind that uh, anger is the desire for the connection and that feeling of connectedness with all things. That's what we feel betrayed from. Because the natural thing, uh, natural state of Dhamma, is, uh, of uh, the as-it-isness of things, is the connection that we all have. So that image, for me, it, it holds anger for a while so that I don't be overwhelmed by it. issued some powerful commands, which they understood each other, and he, uh, uh, he also he had, a, he had a, a, a thing, <laughs> an instrument, which he touched them with in a very sensitive part of his body, which sort of kind of brought him to sobriety, kind of brought him to the moment, you might say. <laughs> and then he spoke to him calmly, and then had him get down, got on top of him, rode him home, back to the temple. Probably to the watering hole first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. The body sensations that come up with an experience, you mean like an emotion, a strong emotion, with correlates in the body? So you want me to talk about... Yeah. Right. Yep. Until what point? As, as long as I would say, um, as either the emotional experience or the body sensations remain a strong and predominant object of investigation. Um, if it's very intense and very painful, frequently I would connect with the primary anchor uh, to be able to assess your energy and the strength of mind and then go back if you can. Go back and forth. If it's not so strong, just stay with it as long as it's, it is predominant. And when it begins to fade into the background, you could come and rest again with your primary anchor. Because everything is impermanent doesn't mean we don't try to hold on. I mean, in fact, that's why we keep coming back, because of a, of a holding on. So it's when we... It's the understanding, it's the wisdom that sees impermanence where we begin to let go.
where is where is what? Well, the like where is a where is a thought? Yeah. So it's it's not in any particular place. There, it's a condition. Like, what is the energy in a seed that makes it a tree? The potential is there. So uh, we could we could speak of it in terms of an energy enfolded in our psyche, in our mental stream. That's why we can have memories. So we can have uh, feelings or smells or tastes that remind us of something. It's 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 there lurking. You can't point it out anywhere, uh, but it's there as an energy. All the ways that we've been teaching, you know, mindfulness, the Brahma Viharas, <laughs> understanding, love. It's 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 a re- it's both a release and a healing is often a better way of approaching it because. Uh, if it's just the attitude of releasing, then we get this sort of work ethic mode of, you know, I've got to fix it, I've got to change it, I've got to get rid of it. Really what we have to do is feel it. Feeling it is healing it and releasing it. And again, connecting with the, um, with the energy behind it that feels interconnected. That is that the Brahma Vihara energy or the wisdom that lets go. It's the wisdom that lets go, not our will that it be got rid of. Um, I think the primary caution should be that feelings, in many cases, are a, a defense or a protective measure. Or, I mean, thoughts are a defense or a protective measure from feelings. That's what I think occurs most of the time, you know, in in this in this work. So to be on guard with that, you know, just notice what we're what the train of thought is that we're on, the fantasy, the memory, and so forth, and try to drop down and see if there is a mood of mind, an emotion that's actually being hidden, being suppressed by that. However, uh, you do point out something that is also quite true, and that is that sometimes certain thoughts, when we pay attention to them, lift feelings. So certain memory or certain kind of thought but one must be really careful in that because then it can get into a project mentality with the work. But if, you're, if something is coming up and you're seeing the kind of a feeling on the edge of it, and by opening the mind to a certain thought sequence or pattern or memory and so forth, you get in touch with that feeling and, the, and you, with awareness, move quickly to that feeling and stay anchored in that, then it could be a skillful approach. In all this, it is skillful means. So there's no rigid, you know, absolutes here. Okay. Yeah. And here in thoughts, I'm talking images, memories, thoughts, fantasies, so forth. And by just holding that for a moment or two mindfully, it allows the feeling to come up a bit. You know, quite naturally. Again, I'm not talking about forcing. We're not trying to make things happen here. But there's just this kind of configuration, and the awareness is exploring the different facets of it. And by being with a certain group of thoughts or cluster of thoughts, it starts to lift a certain group or cluster of feelings, then that can be useful. Yes? The intention of mind. uh, The intention that directs or determines or channels that loving thought to whomever or whatever, 
Love, metta, can have anything as an object, a person, a human person, or in the case of our parrot, a tree, or the planet. You know, or you can in some way use your awareness to frame the whole experience, kind of take in that general, general feeling tone. Um, some of it, I think, has to do with uh, the next Brahma-vihara that we'll be doing, uh, which is sympathetic joy. Um, because there's, well, it's two things. One is the more um, we loosen the grip of grasping, the more gratitude we have. Because grasping or desire tends to overlook what we actually have in the moment seeking something else, or diminish the satisfaction of what we have in the moment in order to prolong it. You know, when we're trying to hold on to something, we're not actually enjoying it as much as when we are just fully present with it. So the less desire there is, the more gratitude there is. And that just happens naturally through the course of doing Vipassana. In sympathetic joy meditation, there's... um, there needs to be some basis in appreciation of what we ourselves have in order to feel joy for the other. Uh, the opposite of sympathetic joy is this state of envy, where we're looking at people and saying, well, I'm pretty happy that you're happy, but if only you were a little less happy, you know, then I'd feel better about myself. You know, I'd feel better about what I have or what I can do or what I can accomplish or whatever. Um, and that state is, is also um, very degrading of the state of gratitude. You know, if we can cultivate joy in what we have and joy for others, then the state of gratitude just comes naturally. So I think between the effects of Vipassana in loosening up desire, and the grip of desire, and in doing something like sympathetic joy, you'd find that quality growing a great deal more. Yeah. What are the opposites of uh, metta and compassion? The opposite, the direct opposite of, of metta is anger, striking out against, wanting to separate from. And the opposite of compassion is cruelty. It's saying, you know, may your pain and suffering continue. Well. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it happens, <laughs> you know. We can call it equanimity or, or patience are very closely um, connected. You know, we call equanimity a spacious stillness, you know, so that there is, there is this deep sense of abiding in peace no matter what is happening. You know, it's not cold, it's not withdrawn, it's not indifferent. You know, it's, it's quite connected to what's happening, but it's not overcome by what's happening. And patience has a very similar quality. You know, it's not the kind of grim endurance that we might normally think of it as in, in conventional terms, you know, like I'll grit my teeth until the end of the sitting and then it'll be over. You know, 
we can easily define patience as that, but that's not what it means. You know, it, it means a very similar kind of surrender into what is happening, you know, with, with acceptance and allowing. Okay, I think that you can reframe the experience somewhat um, to see that uh, if we are deeply accepting of what's going on, then in that moment there's no identification. Identification will arise as we lean into the object, either to hold on to it or to push it away. Um, there's also this quality of solidification or reification of the experience. You know, this is really me. Um, what am I going to do about this? Uh, I'll always be this way. <laughs> you know, there, there are various ways in which we can see a self getting constructed right in that moment if we uh, basically lose the direct mindfulness of the experience. You know, if the wisdom factor starts to erode, the self will get created right there. But if you can even see that process and not get caught in it, then it won't take hold of you. So it's not that you need to um, undo a kind of tendency of mind, you know, to make sure that identification doesn't arise, because it will arise. But to have enough spaciousness from it so that you don't then build an entire structure based on what is in effect a thought. You know, so I wouldn't worry about, you know, where it, where it is. The terminology of uh, the Buddhist psychology, the word conditioned has a lot of different meanings. You know, all of um, everything we can know with the mind is conditioned. Everything that arises due to a cause is conditioned. Everything that changes is conditioned. And the Buddha posited, it's very hard to use words for these things. You know, I was about to say a state, but I don't know that I can call it a state. He posited something <laughs> or nothing uh, that is beyond what we can know with the mind. It's beyond cause and effect, it's beyond duality, it's beyond change. And he called that Nibbana. You know, he talked about Nibbana in two ways. One is a kind of momentary experience with the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. 
and the other is um, some touching of that which is unborn, undying, unconditioned. You know, so what we observe is the conditioned realm. You know, that is what we, we continually observe to see its true nature. And that ranges all the way from <clears throat> personal conditioning and seeing the impersonality of that to seeing the nature of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, <clears throat> thinking and all that, which is also the realm of conditioning, to seeing impermanence, seeing unsatisfactoriness, seeing essencelessness, and then on. You know, so it's the whole range. Yeah. So, if I understand. I think that it largely is uh, can be understood in or only understood really in the context of karma. Um, and even in a monastic situation, in a monastic culture like Burma, there's a great range of degrees of support of different monks. You know, some get a lot of support and some get very little support. Some temples are wealthy, some temples are very poor. In the time of the Buddha, it was the same thing. Um, I think in terms of a practical application of that in our lives, we need to understand what are the karmic conditions for support for prosperity, for well-being, for loving friends, for good environment. Uh, and it really comes down to the cultivation in those respects of uh, dana and sila, that those are the karmic conditions. Um, and so we, that is part of the, that is part of the, the training that we're engaged in not only for the karmic results that come from it, but also because, and perhaps more importantly, because they weaken the force of attachment, they weaken the force of clinging, of craving, which again furthers the whole path to enlightenment. Um. <laughs> perhaps the just a little saying that best expresses, I think, the balance that we need in terms of trust and effort. You know, in some way, that's that is the balance. I'm sure you've, you're all familiar with it. You know, something like trust Allah and tie your camel. You know that you need to <laughs> take care of things of the world even as you cultivate the sense of faith and trust. Um, so I don't know if that's much help. But. Um, it's not a phrase that I use very much. <laughs> uh, but as I understand what you mean, 
there's something very important in understanding the balance between wisdom and compassion. Because we can have a lot of compassion in a situation, and if we don't have proper wisdom, we may want to alleviate the suffering and not have any clue as to a real skillful means of how to do it. I'll, I'll give, actually, <laughs> I'll give you an example of idiot compassion. It was the first time I went to India. Uh, I was in Calcutta. I was quite young, you know, 20 or 21. And I was completely, I mean, it was just this other realm I dropped into. And I saw this group of people sitting, living on the street. And I went over and I gave one of them a dollar. Within about 10 seconds, I had an army of people following me. <laughs> I, it was just extraordinary. You know, and I'm walking down the street and this... <laughs> it was idiot compassion. <laughs> You know, I mean, there was a there was a moment of wanting to to help, but it was a totally inappropriate way of doing it. And so we need the wisdom. We need a certain wisdom of understanding what the situation is, what really will help, what's the appropriate way. And that's why wisdom and compassion are always uh, are linked. It is, and, it's, and, and again, this is, this is why there's such a need in ourselves not only to balance the compassion with wisdom, but the compassion with equanimity. And wisdom shows us, okay, what can we do? What actually is possible for us in this situation, motivated by compassion? Equanimity is that balance of realizing we are unable to end all the suffering in the world. It's not within our capacity. If there's equanimity, it doesn't close off the feeling of compassion, but it keeps our mind in balance, in that understanding. I mean, it's such a big question, you know, and it's... Um, I mean, sometimes people ask, you know, well, why didn't the Buddha address the problem of disease or starvation or, you know, the, the very mundane physical aspects of suffering and which are rife now, you know, in the world today? But in some sense, these are all symptomatic. These are not the root causes of the suffering. They're symptoms of something else. And what the Buddha's awakening, what that was about, was getting at the root cause of suffering. And really, that's our endeavor here. And that has tremendous implications in ways that we can't even imagine to the extent that we understand it in ourselves and then can help others understand. 
It has tremendously far-reaching implications. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not. It's also not to say that we shouldn't engage, sort of, in social, social action, but that there is also something deeper than that, or more fundamental. Well, the most striking thing about his talk last night for me was uh, the difficulty. It's not. It's simple. <laughs> I didn't say it was easy. I said it was simple. It's the practice of developing a mind which clings to naught. That's our practice. You know, and certainly in a monastic situation everything is geared. You know, there's tremendous support for that. In our culture, there's support for just the opposite. Develop a mind which clings to everything. <laughs> that, that's, that's the ambiance in which we live. So it's not easy, you know, and it's not easy to make the transition. But once we understand, once we really... There's an image in my mind, something like... Sort of like a homing pigeon, or I was thinking of some kind of beam, you know, that homes you in to something. Once we're on that beam, where we know where we're going, where we know what the direction is, yeah, there'll be a lot of falling off on either side, but we keep walking and we keep practicing, and we home in, you know, to freedom, and that's what we do, you know, and that's what we're practicing here. And it is hard, it's, and you'll see, you know, in a month. It's not only it's not only going from a monastery to back to Western culture. It's coming from a three-month retreat back into the world. In my own experience, having made that transition from intensive practice to more living in the world, back to intensive practice, many many times that transition is itself its own practice. You know, and the first times are very difficult, but you do it more and more and it gets easier until there's really a very easy flow between the two. But that, that really takes, as I say, it's its own practice. <laughs> it's possible to think or plan something mindfully. It's the difference between consciously thinking something, you know, where you sit down and you know that you're thinking out a situation, a plan, a problem, whatever. You're thinking, but you know you're thinking, and it's directed to a certain goal. That's very different than sitting and being lost in a thought where you don't know. Now, those are two very different states. Well, I think, I think you, you have the answer in the way you ask the question. 
you know, if, if you come up against a block or resistance to something, there is a very big difference between <laughs> trying to force your way through it or that attitude, just as you said, of allowing, allowing the block to be there, but staying aware, holding it in awareness and letting the resolution come out of the space of allowing rather than the space of forcing, which almost always works better. And even, and I've mentioned this before with respect to bodily sensations, even the concept of block or resistance can be a problem. Whatever's going on is what's going on, that's all. Can we be open to that? without creating some kind of concept. This is a block with a whole agenda that comes from that concept. You, know, you see that a lot in terms of different physical sensations. There's tightness, there's hardness, there's contraction. If you think, oh, this is a block, then you think, I have to open it, or I have to get rid of it, or it has to dissolve or something. Already, you're in an adversarial relationship. You know, in this conflict, this suffering. If you see it for just what it, just what it is, hardness, tightness, contraction, it's just another sensation, not different in kind, not different in, in essential quality than ecstatic tingling. <laughs> it's just a sensation, that's all. It's a sensation arising in the moment. Can we be in the same way with it? as with anything else. Dealing with the situation in yourself in the most skillful way. And that's not dependent on the other, the other, the external environment may be doing what it's doing. How are you holding that situation? You know, and you want to hold it in a way that is the most skillful rather than one that's least skillful. And in the context of two billion years, whether you finish that assignment or not, <laughs> doesn't make much difference. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Please have a nice day of practice. <laughs>